following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. In uh, metalworking, that is when you take metal out of its ore or the stones in which we find metal and then you uh, melt it down and shape it and fashion it into different tools and, and other things uh, to make it useful. You need to use intense heat at different points of the process in order to extract that, that pure liquid metal from the rocks in which it is found. Uh, in order to mold it or perhaps hammer it uh, into the desired shape of whatever it is you're making, be it a, a hammer or a sword or a chisel or uh, a pipe or, or whatever. And I, I looked up just how hot you need to get uh, different kinds of metal in order to work with it as I was thinking about the sermon this week. And when I say intense heat, I knew it was intense, but I didn't realize just how intense it was. I'm talking like really, really hot. Uh, the melting point of copper, for instance, is 1,984 degrees Fahrenheit. The melting point of gold is uh, just a little bit cooler at 1,948 degrees Fahrenheit. Lead melts at a mere 621.5 degrees Fahrenheit. But platinum requires 3,215 degrees Fahrenheit to melt. To put this into proper perspective, uh, human bodies, we don't melt because we're made out of carbon. We're not metal. But third-degree burns, which can be life-threatening, depending upon how much of the body they cover, they're caused by exposure to temperatures of about 156 degrees Fahrenheit for just one second. But again, to melt platinum, for instance, requires 3,215 degrees Fahrenheit over a period of time in a crucible. That is uh, the vessel in which you melt metals down to get uh, the impurities out. And yet, all these different metals that I've mentioned, they're not too hot to handle. They're merely too hot to handle carelessly. Uh, it takes great skill, care, and proper tools or instruments in order to handle these hot metals, in order to work with them and to make them useful uh, for society and, and convenience. Well, our text tonight shows us something about handling God's Word. Handling God's Word is something like handling hot, molten metal. And that is, it takes much wisdom, care, and in some ways the proper tools and discretion to handle rightly. The Word of God is not too hot to handle, but you must take great care in doing so. As we continue working through the Sermon on the Mount, we proceed this evening from rightly judging others, that is, not rashly, but justly and lawfully judging uh, those around us in a variety of situations now, to rightly handling the Word of God before others. Some commentators, John Calvin among them, uh, will tell us that verse 6 has nothing to do with verses 1 to 5. And I just think that's dead wrong. 
The sermon is a unified whole. Jesus is moving very logically through different uh, aspects of the discipleship's relationship to the world as, as they live out kingdom of heaven ethics in the world around them. And verse 6 really has to do with judging rightly in many ways, making judgments between man and man in order now to rightly handle the word of God. And so what I intend to show you from our text this evening is that we must wisely handle God's word for the sake of his holiness and our ministry. We must wisely handle God's word for the sake of his holiness and our ministry. We're going to unpack this serious command that Jesus gives to his disciples in two parts. In the first place, wise handling of God's word from that first half of the verse, which contains that prohibition Jesus gives, that command. And then in, in the second half, the dangers of indiscretion in gospel ministry, where Jesus gives us two reasons to enforce his command. So wise handling of God's word, and then the dangers of indiscretion in gospel ministry. Look at the first half of verse 6 with me. Jesus says to his disciples, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine. From, from this verse, we're given two, uh, two, uh, two takeaways that I want to put before you from this first half of the verse. First, Jesus tells us something about the character of God's word, doesn't he? In that it's holy, and that it's uh, analogous to pearls. I believe he's talking about the word of God in particular, but also all uh, the ordinances of the word, how it is that it's set before men. But then he also tells us how to handle God's precious truth, how to handle his word. He says, don't give it to dogs, do not throw it to uh, swine or before swine or to the pigs. So the character of God's word, what is it? It's holy. What do I mean by saying that it's holy? What does Jesus mean by calling it the holy thing here? It's that this word of God that he has given to his people, it's to be set apart for particular uses according to his purposes. Uh, something that we might draw out of the Old Testament that was set apart for God's particular uses that could not be abused. Uh, were all those different implements and, and tools and materials used in the tabernacle worship and in temple worship. Uh, for one example, the anointing oil that would have been used to anoint priests and kings. Uh, Moses says, or God says through Moses, it shall not be poured on anyone's body, nor shall you make any like it in the same proportions. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever shall mix any like it or whoever puts any of it on a layman shall be cut off from his people. So that's what Jesus is, is referring to here or, or drawing from that background. And the same thing with the incense in the tabernacle. You weren't supposed to take that recipe and, and mix it up for, for any other purpose. It was reserved specifically for the tabernacle and later on temple worship. We might illustrate it this way. If you walk into a mechanics shop, uh, not necessarily thought of as a holy place, mind you. But you walk into a mechanic's shop, and let's say he's a very orderly mechanic, and he has his, uh, his big tool chest, 
and it's all really well laid out. And he has all his drawers with, with different ratchets and wrenches and, and screwdrivers and pneumatic tools and everything. And you go in there, and he's a car mechanic, and you say to him, hey, uh, I want to build a, a new pulpit for my church. The first thing he's going to do is laugh at you and say, you're in the wrong place, bub. These tools are set aside for fixing cars, not for woodworking. Much the same way, God's word is set apart, set aside for a particular use and indeed a holy and glorious use, namely the salvation of souls. So what? So what? This is a holy thing. What does that matter? Jesus responds to that inquiry, if you will, by saying that not only is this holy, but it is precious. Note how he characterizes this holy thing of his word, his truth. He characterizes it as pearls, tas margaritas in the Greek. Indeed, this is a precious, valuable thing to those who know what it is. Later on in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 13, where he gives a series of kingdom parables, um, he speaks of the pearl of great price in the field. And upon finding one pearl of great value, the man in the parable went and sold all that he had and bought the field in order to get that pearl. And that's how he's characterizing this holy thing, his truth, in Matthew 7, verse 6. Uh, Again, to give another illustration drawn from cars and automotives, if you've ever heard of this, uh, garage queens, where you go out into the country and you see an abandoned garage or an old farm house, and, and you go in and you're expecting just junk, hay or whatever, and then you open it up and there's a classic car under a tarp. Uh, obviously, somebody left it there. And most people would probably just go in and see a rusted out old car and not think anything of it, covered in dust, not able to even start it or use it for anything. But To the one who knows the value of such a vehicle, he would buy the whole property just to get his hands on that car so he could restore it and put it back into its proper use. And that's a garage queen in cars. We have another thing in guitars called closet queens where someone has a a guitar in their closet for many years and they, you know, their kids don't know how valuable it is. And you go to a yard sale and you find this thing and you realize, whoa, this is really valuable. I'd buy the whole house just to have this instrument. That's kind of like how Jesus is, is characterizing that which he's referring to as holy here. It's something that darkened minds cannot comprehend. Pigs don't know how valuable pearls are. Don't give it to them. Rather, recognize their value and thus treasure them yourself. You see, God has set his precious, valuable, holy word aside for his purposes in and through us as his church. And for you men preparing for the ministry in a a focused way in and through you as gospel ministers. So I ask you this, why are we so flippant and casual with God's word? We were talking about Turkey and Syria and our our Muslim neighbors on the other side of the planet. uh, when uh, When Muslims convert to Christianity, and I know a few, they frequently remark at just how profane we treat physical copies of God's word. They say, when I was a Muslim... We basically venerated the Quran. And they say, I know that's extreme, and you shouldn't do that. 
but you would never set it on the floor. You would never just throw it aside. You would do everything you could to make sure it wouldn't get ripped. And that's how they treat a, a, a book of lies. How much more should we respect God's holy word? Now, I'm not saying you should venerate it or worship it. These are but pieces of paper in and of themselves. But let us show our respect for God's word and how we approach it, how we take it up, to read it. Are we coming in submission to God's word when we open it up? Uh, do you give adequate thought to how it is God directs you to take up and to use his word, his truth, his doctrine, even indeed his gospel? Notice how Jesus tells us to handle his precious truth. He says here in the first half of our verse, do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine or the pigs. And what he's telling us here is we must be discreet in presenting the gospel and in giving God's truth to the world. Now, we know from other parts of Matthew's gospel, namely Matthew 28 with the Great Commission, but also Matthew 10, verse 27, where Jesus commissions his disciples to go out and to proclaim his teachings to all who will hear. Indeed, he, he says it in Matthew 10 that his disciples are to go onto the rooftops and proclaim the secret sayings which he's been giving to them. And in Mark's gospel, in Mark 16, 15, we're told to Proclaim the gospel. Preach the gospel, not just every man, but every creature. And St. Francis of Assisi took that literally. He was preaching the gospel to birds and other animals. I don't think we should take it literally in that sense. But surely we are to be indiscriminate in proclaiming and preaching the gospel. We are not to withhold it from any man, tribe, or nation. We are to publish it broadly. We're not to hide it away like some kind of esoteric knowledge. However, Jesus says here for us not to give what is holy to dogs and not to throw our pearls before swine. So how do we reconcile this? While we are indiscriminate, impartial in publishing the gospel, yet we must be discreet in how we handle God's word before those who are obstinate and maliciously opposed to the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew uh, chapter 15, verse 26 and 27, Jesus will say it's not good to feed the children's food to the dogs when he's approached by this uh, Samaritan woman. And there he's using dogs in, in a different sense than what he's using it here. In, in Matthew 15, when he says the dogs, because that's a cross-reference text here, and it's important to explain this, and we're going to get there in months and months when we get to that chapter. But in Matthew 15, Jesus is using dogs there in the sense of those who are not in the visible church. Here, he's using dogs in a different sense. He's using dogs in the sense of the rabid, snarling herds and packs of dogs which would roam about Palestine, tearing apart people that they find on the road by themselves. He's using dogs to describe those maliciously obstinate persecutors of the church, which he's been warning his disciples about again and again and again. Here he's referring to those who reject God, reject his word, reject the means of his grace, and reject his ministers, even seeking to tear them apart. So how do we identify men as such, as maliciously obstinate dogs, if you will, or as 
obdurately stupid swine or pigs, that is, willfully uh, uh, profane men. How do we identify them? Well, Matthew 18, Jesus makes very clear the process by which the disciples are to uh, seek out church discipline, which will ultimately end in excommunication if repentance isn't followed. And in Titus chapter 3, verses 10 or 11, Paul writes to Titus, encouraging him, in fact, directing him to reject a factious man after a first and a second warning. Um, we all are aware of, uh, of excommunication, that is, barring somebody from the table, and at times even barring them from the fellowship, expressed fellowship of the church, uh, through church discipline. But who makes that judgment? Is that a private judgment that we make as individuals? Do you or, or I, by myself, do we excommunicate somebody? No. William Perkins makes the great point here that uh, God has appointed a process by which men are judged to be dogs and swine. That is to be malicious opponents of God's church and of his word. And that process is church discipline, which is given to those who have the keys of the kingdom. That is God's officers, the elders of the church. Ministers and governors of the church is a classic way of expressing it. They are supposed to follow a very particular process, detailed in part in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, and then expanded upon in uh, the pastoral epistles of Paul in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, uh, by which we judge someone to be outside of the fellowship of the church. And then we must enact church discipline in order to keep the peace and purity of the church, but also as a way to plead with those men to repent. For obviously, the ordinary means of preaching and sacrament and prayer and fellowship have been of no avail to them. And now you take this extreme means of cutting him off from the people of God in order, seeking uh, prayerfully to drive him to repentance. And this is a judgment reserved to those called to govern the church. For elders, then, discretion in gospel ministry involves the hard work of wielding those keys of the kingdom rightly, of being well-informed of what it is the Word requires, and we'll get into that in later weeks. But the point here from this text, from this one verse, is this. Is not God's Word, is not His ordinances, are, are not His ordinances precious? Aren't they valuable? Aren't they to be... Uh, protected, not squandered on those who assault God's truth and his ministry? What are some ways to illustrate how they might be squandered, how they might be abused? Well, let's say there's a posting at a secular university for a professor of religion, and they even say, we want a Christian professor here, but that university is infamous for being, um, pardon the expression, but hell-bent against the kingdom of God and uh, against God's truth. Should a Christian take that post? Probably not. Because as soon as he gets into that context, as soon as he gets into that position as a Christian teacher, perhaps as a minister with his doctorate in theology or whatever, he's going to be vexed in his soul, continually opposed, ridiculed, mocked, and spat upon by his colleagues and his students. So I would say that it probably, um, other things being equal, would not be a good use of his talents. And then for you men preparing for the ministry, let's say you're, you're exploring calls 
and you get a, a knock on the door from a denomination or a church, which you know is completely devoid of the gospel, would it make any sense at all for you to pursue a call in that context? Really? Any sense at all? No, it wouldn't. Why would you cast your pearls, the pearls which God has given you before swine? Instead, we are to seek out those places where um, in evangelism, we call them people of peace who are open and receptive to the gospel. Uh, seek out those kinds of appointments, those kinds of situations to share the gospel. But for all of us, whether we're ministers or teachers or not, or, or, or we just occupy uh, what's called the general office of believer, for each and every one of us, discretion involves care in our everyday speech and interactions. This will become clearer as we work through the second half of the text, but suffice it to say at this point that our posture, whenever we go out into the various uh, occasions or situations or societies of which we're a part, um, our posture is to be equal parts zeal for sharing the gospel and care for honoring and sanctifying God and his word in our interactions. Uh, I made this point in our evangelism seminar last month. A few of you were there. You probably remember this. I said there's a very fine line in evangelism between being memorable in presenting the gospel and then being corny or frivolous or forced in how you present the gospel. I'm not going to give you examples from the pulpit of what the latter looks like, but some of you are probably aware of what that looks like. There's a fine line between being memorable and being hokey or even profane in how you share the gospel. And I think much of what counts for Christian evangelism in our day and age is rather profane. And in... in I hesitate to give any examples. I wish not to offend without cause, but um, just so much of it is so frivolous and offensive uh, to those who have biblical sensibilities. Now, what is the gospel, though? What is it that we're talking about here? That which is holy, that which is precious as a pearl. Well, it is the inestimably precious, incalculably valuable, and utterly unique message given to us in God's word, that message of salvation, that God saves sinners, that's pretty memorable, and that's not at all frivolous. You see, the only hope sinners have of being delivered from God's just judgment, reconciled to him, and ushered into his comforting presence by his grace is expressed in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ the eternal Son of God, who, for the joy set before Him, that is the joy of securing redeemed people for His Father's glory, set aside the outward show of His infinite splendor in heaven and took to Himself human flesh and what our catechism calls a reasonable soul. That is, He was fully man and lived in the humility of our condition under sin's curse, yet without sin's taint. And then suffered the condemnation you and I deserve. That is, he, as a perfect son of man, suffered an inglorious and shameful death on a Roman cross, separation from the love of our heavenly Father, and entered the tomb bloodied, dead, and buried, wrapped in linens. But this one who satisfied the just wrath of God in his death could not be kept in his tomb. 
You see, this is what we have to pronounce to the world. He burst the bonds of the grave and demonstrated his power uh, of, um, over sin and death before hundreds of eyewitnesses, before commissioning his disciples to carry forth his message of salvation to the ends of the earth and to every nation, uh, and then ascending into heaven for the most glorious coronation day ever known. Brothers and sisters, this is an amazing message that we have. And that this same Jesus, he's not done. He's coming back. He will ride the clouds as his chariot and descend from heaven with a shout, raising the dead, judging the nations, and consummating his kingdom of glory. See, nothing else known to man compares to this. It is the most amazing story ever told, and it is the most true story ever told the gospel of our mighty Redeemer. But this gospel, which is so amazing to us, those who believe and who rest upon Jesus for salvation, it is scandalous in the eyes of the world at precisely that point, which is so marvelous. That is that one who died could not be held by death but came back from the dead. And so Christ points out two dangers of indiscretion in gospel ministry. Two dangers that attend this scandal in the eyes of the world. And he gives these two dangers as reasons to enforce the prohibition on being indiscreet in sharing uh, this truth which, with which we've been entrusted. The first danger, uh, I would say, is ministry dangers. Um, and then the second danger would be minister dangers. And so ministry dangers have a couple of problems with them. Uh, notice what he says here. Or they will trample them, that is the pearls, or that which is holy, under their feet. And then the minister dangers would be turn and tear you to pieces. So dangers against the truth, but then dangers as well against the bringer of truth. In ministry, whenever holy things are handled, wherever holy things come into contact with not-so-holy things, there's a danger of invasion. You see, um, there's, there's this willfulness in man that seeks to invade Eden. Why else would God put up the, the seraphim with the flaming sword to guard the way of approach into that, that, uh, that sanctum God had erected in the Garden of Eden? But we see this expressed in history, even beyond that, uh, in the destruction and invasion of God's temple. Not only uh, the carrying out of the treasures of the temple of uh, Jerusalem, which happened multiple times and on multiple occasions in the Old Testament, but also in 168 B.C., Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes actually in invaded Jerusalem, conquered it, and entered the Holy of Holies in the temple... This is the second temple at this point. And erected a statue of Zeus and sacrificed a pig on the altar of incense in that place. You see that drive that wicked men have to profane the holy sanctuary of God. And then in AD 70, you see Roman general, future emperor Titus Vespasian did the same thing. Essentially, he invaded Jerusalem, destroyed the city, and went to the temple and destroyed the temple to put down the rebellion of the Jews in AD 70. And surely today, we see an impulse in the powers of the world. The nations are raging to do what? To desecrate that which is holy and set apart by God, namely his church. 
The second problem, not just one of invasion, but the second problem that Jesus highlights here in using this analogy of pearls before swine and the, the swine trampling the pearls under their feet is, is very simply this. Unenlightened men and minds cannot recognize the special value of holy things. Pigs uh, typically eat uh, acorns, pea pods, things that are about the size of pearls. And if they saw a pearl, their first instinct would be to, to think that it was food. So that they would go and they'd probably gobble them up, chew on them a bit, realize there's no taste to them and they can't break them on their teeth, spit them out, and then trample them into the muck and the mire. Because they don't realize at all, they don't recognize just how valuable they are. And so it is with those who are unregenerate and those who are obstinately opposed to the things of God. Think of King Ahab and King Herod in the Bible, um, in the Old and New Testaments. They had set before them the gospel by powerful prophets. I mean, we're talking about Elijah and John the Baptist, not to mention uh, the Apostle Paul and even Jesus himself going before them. And what do they do when called to Reformation? They trample the truth underfoot. They profane it by capitalizing on their position uh, in this religious community in order to puff themselves up rather than to reform themselves under the hand of God. Pigs are doing precisely that. That's why Jesus uses this image. My friends, when we go out preaching the gospel, doing what we do in evangelism, we must keep in mind ever and always what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You must be born again. You must be born from above. There needs to be a supernatural change that takes place in the human heart before uh, we can perceive just how valuable and precious God's Word is. Without that change wrought by the Spirit of God in our hearts, we are as stupid swine, dead set against the things of God, seeking only to devour, and if we can't devour, to destroy that which is set before us. Uh, brothers and sisters... This is instructive to us, isn't it? Not only that Jesus, by his example, goes ahead of us to cleanse the holy places and cleansing the temple in Matthew 21, and not only in Paul in 1 Timothy 6, instructing uh, Timothy to do what? To, to guard that which has been entrusted to him. But it's also instructive to us in our personal lives how it is we approach the word, returning to that theme. How do you handle the word written? The word visibly shown in the sacraments. Uh, the word turned over to God in prayer and other means of God's grace. Uh, how do you regard the ministry which is entrusted not only to pastors and elders, but to each one of us by our merit of being called followers of Christ? Some of you, perhaps, boys and men, will be called to be elders in the church and in so being called, you will be tasked with safeguarding the word. You might not be preaching every Sunday, but you will need to watch over the word. And all of you as members of the church, baptized and communing members of the church, will be called upon to consider the men in your midst and to think through, who is it that I would trust to watch over the ministry of the word in this place? And hopefully even in the next years, we think about that and nominate men to stand for office. We, we think through that question. Is this man knowledgeable, godly, and sincere in following after Christ that I would be confident that he would watch over the ministry of the word? 
to make sure Pastor Groff doesn't say anything wrong or Dr. Piper, whoever else fills the pulpit. These are life and death eternal matters. The destruction on churches in not taking seriously the, the precious worth of God's word is incalculably damaging. But the world, the flesh, and the devil, they hate those who handle the ministry as God directs us to handle it. They want the, the molten metal to splash out of the crucible onto the ground to be wasted or onto those handling it to be burned. And so Jesus warns us of a second danger which we are to guard ourselves from by means of discretion, and that is minister dangers. Now, when I say minister dangers, I don't mean um, dangers of ministers. Jesus will speak later on in this chapter about uh, true and false prophets. But I'm speaking about dangers to those who are earnest in gospel ministry. You see, in the same place uh, where Christ directs his disciples to proclaim his words from the housetops in Matthew chapter 10, he also cautions them to be famously shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves in how they proclaim the gospel. You see, throughout Matthew's gospel, he's preparing his disciples for the inevitable persecution that they would face in their lives and ministries. Not only preparing them to endure it, even to the death, as most of his apostles would experience, but actually preparing them to, to deal with it. He says, flee persecution as much as you can. Be shrewd as serpents. Don't rush headlong into a disaster and waste the ministry like even a good King Josiah did rushing into the battlefield when he wasn't supposed to and getting taken out before his time, so to speak. And these dangers, they're perennially relevant. In our adult Sunday school today, we began looking at the mystery of providence by John Flavel. And one of the points that was made is that Flavel's life is remarkable because he survived all of the persecution that many of his Puritan brothers, including his father, uh, suffered through and died in. And yet Flavel made it all the way through. Now, is that because Flavel was faithless? No. If you read the publisher's introduction, uh, which was countenanced as helpful this morning, then you will notice that Flavel was very wise. He was shrewd. He was bold and courageous. He, he was in dangerous situations. But there were times when he said no to certain opportunities that came up because he knew that he needed to safeguard that which was entrusted to him. And some of you boys and girls know the story about John Wycliffe, the proto-reformer who was translating the Bible. He was always on the run in his life, and eventually he was caught and put to death. But because he was diligent about escaping, he was able to finish his work and bring the Bible uh, into English. There's a heightened danger that Jesus is pointing out here at the end of verse 6, a heightened danger for ministers of the word as persecutors practice what is called in counterinsurgency uh, literature, decapitation tactics. That is taking off the head. The idea is if you can take out a leader of a group, then the followers will scatter to the four winds and no longer present any real threat to whatever it is you're trying to enforce. And for ministers and elders, there are times to make a strategic retreat from a particular field in order to be of further use in the future. And that's one way to avoid uh, giving what is holy to dogs. Now, that's not to say that a minister's life is, in, is intrinsically more valuable than the lives of those in the pews. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying, however, is that there takes, uh, there takes much wisdom 
to know when a man should stand and put himself in danger and when a man should withdraw in order to return and be of long-range, long-term usefulness to the church and particularly to his flock. It takes a whole lot of wisdom to know when and how to do this, and we need to pray that the Spirit would give us this wisdom when these kinds of situations come up. But this is the key difference between a true gospel minister and the hireling who flees from danger, as described in John 10, 12, which you might be thinking about even now. And that's this. The true gospel minister, he makes his strategic retreats for the good of the church, whereas the hireling gets out of Dodge to save his own skin. You see the difference there? They might look like the same to the outside observer, but God knows the heart. And generally, you can tell the difference by the fruit that it bears later on in his ministry. The hireling will usually exit the ministry entirely, change his name, and, and really get out of Dodge, whereas the true gospel minister will rush back in as soon as he can. Or in the case of John Flavel, um, there was a particular law that said a, a man who was a nonconformist minister, basically a Puritan, had to remove himself from his pulpit and the vicinity thereof going five, at least five miles out. And that's exactly what he did. And he kept the law and he didn't get any trouble. He went five miles out and then he invited his parishioners to come make that long journey, which back then was a long journey, and he would minister to them five miles away from his former pulpit. And that's what a true gospel minister does. Uh, rather than being intimidated into inactivity, it's a strategic retreat that such a man does. In following what Jesus says here, that he would not be torn to pieces and his ministry made of no avail. Well, as elders, we must plead for wisdom from God in dangerous situations. But as believers, all of us, we need to be patient with leaders in ministry and also protective of them. Not loyal to a fault, but in general, our instinct should be to be protective. Having that charity uh, or judgment of charity, as I discussed last week from the first five verses of this chapter. And why? Because we desire earnestly to preserve the ministry. Because it's holy and because God's word is holy and precious. And it's by the ministry that God's word is proclaimed to the nations and, and, and given to his people. That being said, there is a difference between making a strategic retreat and denying the faith. Sometimes we need to shut down a preaching station, so to speak. Sometimes we need to uh, stop publishing abroad the gospel in a particular manner, but we must never fail to testify when called upon to do so. You see, Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, what does he write there? He says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Always being ready to make a defense. That is to testify to that which you believe. It is never appropriate to deny the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. This text gives us no warrant, no justification by any way to deny our Lord. If you're called upon uh, to claim Christ or to deny Him, my hope is that you will always claim Him. It is not being shrewd as a serpent to deny Him. No, it's, it's being a turncoat to deny Him. Uh, but that doesn't mean we can't be discreet in how we publish and proclaim God's Word. 
I spoke earlier of the dangers of handling hot material and the dangers of handling God's word. But I want to end on the note not so much of, of danger, but on the intrinsic value and preciousness, as I've said multiple times already, of God's truth. We are to handle it as you would perhaps, maybe this will go over the heads of some of our little ones here. As Thomas More noted in Utopia, little ones don't understand the value of gold and gems and jewels. But we are to handle God's word in a way like we would handle a fine china teacup that belonged to our great-grandmother, that was filled with our grandmothers and our mothers' jewels and gems and diamonds and other fair family heirlooms, and then put on a gold platter that belonged to our grandfather or the king of England or something like that. If you had such, such a treasure in your hands, would you just walk around on 417 or 101 with it, uh, with your thumb out? like a hitchhiker, uh, wouldn't you at the very least bundle it up and try to hide it away? I mean, certainly Rachel did that with her father's idols. How much more should we do that with the treasure that we have in God's Word? Amen. We are to handle God's Word with great care, showing to the world by how we handle it its value. You see, if we cheapen God's Word, if we, if we repackage it in, in trite sayings and, and flippant, uh, flippant mnemonic devices and things of that nature, no one's going to want to receive it. But even more so, it would bring great dishonor to God. No, we are to, to treat God and His Word holy as it is holy, with reverence, with respect, and I even dare to say with awe that he would give it to us at all in the first place. Do you ever marvel at the fact that we have this? I marvel that it's been proven over and over again to be historically accurate and true and all of those things. But you open up the Psalms and you see how it searches out your heart. And you think, you take everything else that I own, but leave me with this. If I found myself in a prison cell with just uh, the shirt on my back and they said, what's one thing you want? I would say, give me a Bible, any translation, just give it to me, please. Um, is that how we regard God's word? You see, this, this teaching which Christ gives us, and do not give what is holy to dogs, do not throw your pearls before swine, it's showing us that we must wisely handle God's word for the sake of his holiness in our ministry. It also shows us that we must cherish God's word. You cannot handle it wisely without valuing it truly. And so may that be uh, something that's a distinctive about our church. Indeed, a distinctive of the PCA and, and of every Christian and Bible-believing church. We not only believe the Bible, but we love the Bible. We cherish the Bible. We store it up in our hearts. We hide it away. We put it before those and only those who are not going to profane it. But we do so with zeal for the salvation of souls, for that's the content of the message which we preach. Let us pray. O Lord, our God in heaven above, you've promised wisdom to men by your spirit. And we pray, O Lord, that you would impress upon our hearts this word of truth which you've given to us, that we would be wise in how we handle your word, that we would handle it as holy, for it is holy, that we would handle it as precious, for it is precious truth that can be found nowhere else. And that we would do so with all discretion and yet indiscriminately, 
with zeal for evangelism and discipleship and all that which you have given your church to do. Lord, we pray as well that you would give us great courage, that we would not be intimidated by the profane men of this world and scared into silence, but rather that we would have courage and boldness to share the gospel with all who would hear and that we would go forth even as the apostles into hostile environments, seeking those who would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved according to your divine and predestinating appointment. Lord, you are the God of grace, and you save sinners, even obstinate sinners. We pray that you would bring those who are maliciously opposed to your word to yourself, that you would use uh, the, the ministry of the Spirit in the hearts of men to turn those who perhaps have heard the gospel in days gone by and have rejected it to once more consider it and to seek it and find it. For you have promised to reveal it to those who would seek with earnestness and truth in their hearts. Lord, we now dedicate ourselves this night to the ministry uh, which you have appointed for your church. We dedicate ourselves to that great commission. And we dedicate ourselves to the ministry of the word and in the various capacities that you've appointed for our stations in life as ministers, as members, as, as mothers and fathers and children, as friends and, and, and loved ones and teachers here in the church. And we dedicate as well to you a portion of that which we've received from your uh, bountiful store of grace and mercy. And we ask you to bless this offering for the building up of your church, the extension of your kingdom, and the sanctification of of your holy name, in which we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.